Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He ranted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly, Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. In 2019, Chile was on fire. Chile is extending the state of emergency to cities in the north and south. Rioting continued in spite of a curfew imposed for a second consecutive night. Protesters clashing with police in many areas of the capital, Santiago. Eight people are known to have been killed since the unrest began on Friday. A protest that started with a subway fare hike exploded into a movement demanding reform on all kinds of things. Wealth inequality, education, women's rights, indigenous rights, the environment. People were so fed up that leaders from all sides of the political spectrum agreed to make a change, a major change. They agreed to rewrite the Constitution. This was a document written under dictator Augusto Pinochet, and many believe that it laid the foundation for their suffering. Chile has already had too much violence, but time has come for a great national agreement against violence and in defense of democracy and peace. Three years later, that new constitution is here. It was revealed on Monday, and the final draft proposal, if it's approved, could be one of the most progressive constitutions in the world. It's the first to be written with gender parity, and the first that prioritizes environmental protection and gender equality. And in a major shift from the current Pinochet-era constitution, the state must guarantee social rights, such as health, education, and welfare. This week on the show, we're going to look at how Chile managed to get here and why some people don't want this new vision for the country to become a reality. My guest is Pablo Abufom, a writer and activist with the organization Solidaridad. He's based in Santiago, and he's been pushing for these changes for years. I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Hey, Pablo. Welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. Hey, yeah. Thanks, Tamara. It's great to be here. So, Pablo, this all started with the protests in 2019 where millions of Chileans were demanding social reform and they were pointing to the Constitution as sort of the heart of a lot of the country's issues. So why don't we start with a few of the problems that people had with the Constitution? I I know a lot of the concern is around the way that it favors the ownership of private property above everything else. I know there's been a big debate around this in Chile when it comes to water. So can you tell me about that to start with? Yeah. So many of the demands that the working people and the social movements have had for the past decades have been limited because the political system 
declares those uh, demands as unconstitutional, right? And so maybe one of the main ones is the human right to have access to drinking water and water for the communities. The current constitution, it guarantees property rights. It talks about free enterprise. The, the most important thing for the constitution is companies and corporations having their rights to uh, buy and sell everything, including water, including the land for agricultural production. It's all part of the market. So the commodification of everything is the basis of the current constitution. Like, for instance, avocado, which is a, like a big, big product in Chile that it's exported to other countries, especially North America and Europe. And that has a, a very high consumption of water. I'm mentioning avocado because it has become a sort of like a symbol of that uh, ambitious consumption of, wa of water for uh, exportation and not for human consumption. So, so when it comes to water, what has the current framework um, of protecting companies, what has that meant for the average person in Chile? Well, in the most extreme cases, it has meant that some communities right now don't have access to drinking water, to running water, and they get their water from local governments who have to send trucks with water to serve the communities. Residents have to rely on water tankers. Barbara and her two children are allowed to use 50 litres each every day. This is what I've put aside. The water isn't drinkable, but you can use it for washing your hands or going to the toilet. In some cases, rural communities, for instance, don't have water to irrigate their local production, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and that's, can you imagine, like, being in the middle of a pandemic? And they were telling us since the first days, you have to wash your hands, and, and people didn't have water. Wow. Right. So yeah. that's the extent of that public policy of guaranteeing the right of the companies to use water, but not the communities. And the protection that the Constitution gives to private enterprise, what does that mean for things like health care and education? What does that mean for public services? Yeah, we have to understand that the 1980 Constitution was the project of the dictatorship to establish the basis for all of the, the changes they wanted to do, what people later called the neoliberal system. And so it meant that during the 80s, almost all, if not all, public services were privatized, or at least the public sector in healthcare and education were marginalized. And in the case of healthcare and housing, people have no access to uh, decent healthcare unless they pay for it. It's the private companies who are profiting out of that service. It's not the, the human dignity that it's on the center, but it's actually uh, gain, profit. Yeah. So whereas um, in other places, social and economic rights for people would be guaranteed, the Chilean constitution right now protects the rights of private companies to offer these services and compete with the government. Exactly. So the, the idea is that the state has to guarantee an equal treatment of the public and the private sector. The other criticism that I've seen over and over again is that the Constitution enshrines income inequality. And Chile is one of the most unequal countries in the world, according to the OECD. So can you just explain how the Constitution does that? How has the con Constitution contributed to this? Yeah, so if 
you use public funds to finance uh, private investment, it means that a lot of that money basically is going to private hands and not people, national wealth. It's being redistributed, but upwards, right? It's going to the rich uh, companies and corporations. Mm -hmm. It also means that since we have this so-called equal treatment to the private and the public sector, even if you have an 80% of the population using the public healthcare system, the, the state is giving a lot of funding to the private uh, healthcare uh, clinics or hospitals. But then another thing is that for instance, there is only one mention of the word strike in the Constitution, and it's only to restrict the, the right to strike by workers. So it means that the ways that we've seen historically for workers to improve their income, to change that inequality, yeah. is also highly restricted. We don't have ways to struggle for, for a change in those structural conditions. Yeah. So that combination is terrible. You mentioned earlier that this is a constitution that was written under the military dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, who was in power from 1973 to 1990. When General Augusto Pinochet seized power, it was quick and brutal. Many supporters of the socialist government suddenly found they were enemies of the state. In total, Chile has officially acknowledged that nearly 38,000 people were subjected to political imprisonment and torture. How much of this movement that we've seen over the last few years has been about what the Constitution represents symbolically? A lot of it has been uh, about the illegitimate origin of the Constitution, the fact that it was written behind closed doors by a group of friends and, and uh, supporters of the dictatorship. The need for a new Constitution is, at the same time, the need to uh, overcome Pinochet's Constitution, to, to leave that part of our political history in the past and, ha and, and have a new start. Something else that also has been very important is the fact that this constitution doesn't recognize uh, First Nations. It doesn't recognize the fact that before the establishment, the creation of the colonial state in Chile, uh, there were people living here. There were people thriving here. So it's not just about the illegitimate origin of the constitution of 1980, but it's also about the conflicted, contradictory origin of the Republic. Okay, so everything we just talked about, this was the backdrop when in 2019 we saw these massive protests that led to the rewriting of the Constitution. And this was all ignited by kind of an unlikely spark when people stopped paying to ride the subway en masse in response to a subway fare hike, yes. right? It's interesting that those protests uh, against the suburb fair hike were guided by high school students. That year, 2019, was the year of a lot of police brutality against students in high school in, in Santiago mainly, but also in other cities, uh, by conservative right-wing uh, mayors, 
by a government that doesn't really recognize the youth as uh, as a political agent. The spark was um, the mixture, the explosive mixture of police brutality against this very militant, very combative students during those protests. You saw images of battalions of cops inside the subway stations, like blocking uh, students from evading, because the main way of protest those days was uh, jumping the turnstiles and not paying the, the subway fare. The government decided to shut down the subway and that made the, the transportation for people to go back to their homes or, or places after work, it was very difficult on that day of October 18th, 2019. And so that created mm -hmm. this sentiment of, well, this is too, this is enough. Mobs have been caught on street cameras descending on metro stations. Commuters have dodged tear gas and water cannon as police and protesters confront each other. The electrical company Enil said a group of people set its high-rise building on fire. The blaze could be seen across the city. When that happened, the government, Piñera's government, the right-wing government, decided to call on a state of emergency and, and bring out the military to the streets to crack down on the, the movement. Police have fired pellets and rubber bullets. These rounds are often shot at close range, hitting people where they can do maximum damage, the eyes. More than 180 protesters have been partly blinded, and the numbers continue to rise. And, and these protests, like to give people an idea who maybe weren't following them, there's people from all walks of life who are in the streets and they basically paralyzed the country for yeah. weeks, right? Like you could see people who were leaving their offices to join the protest. So it was young people, it was uh, all, all, older people. There are pictures, amazing pictures of old ladies uh, shouting at the police and, and trying to send the, the tear gas bombs back to the police. So uh, there was a general discontent that was being expressed by the people. It was not just the public transport, but about everything. Truck drivers blocked the ring roads around the capital. They say tolls for the roads operated by private companies are too high. These highway agreements have been in place since 2006. The companies have earned back their investment eight times over, and they keep charging us, and people are in debt. Some demonstrators want a new constitution for Chile, one that protects social services and resources from being privatized. And so the, the cool thing about what happened in Chile is that we see mass protests and uprisings in other parts of the world all the time, but they don't always result in a constitution being rewritten. Th these documents are usually seen as immovable, set in stone. People don't even bother trying to change them. So this is pretty incredible. How has the energy from that moment sustained over the last few years and, and resulted in this? The idea that we needed to change the constitution was there for decades. And the underlying crisis that pushed people to the brink of a revolt were there for decades. And so it's an energy that's been accum accumulating for years. But the idea of only changing the constitution was 
sort of imposed by the political circumstances in Chile. The mass of protesters were not a political force with a, with a project for a new society. It was more discontent being expressed in the streets. And so there was, that was the weakness of the movement. We knew what we wanted to change, but not necessarily what exactly we were going to have as a, as a replacement. People identified the state violence with the president, with Sebastián Piñera. So the calls for Piñera to resign were everywhere around the country. And that, of course, was displaced by the idea of constitutional change. It's definitely a historical thing, having a constitutional change. Mm. But in a way, it, it institutionalized the energy for, for radical change. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't heard people talk about it that way, but that's really interesting. Uncover from CBC Podcasts is your source for exceptional storytelling and groundbreaking journalism. Unveil the shocking secrets of one of Canada's most prolific fashion moguls. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. And dive into the unsolved murders of two Canadian billionaires. This is a perfect storm of conspiracy theory. It's got all the ingredients, none of the answers. With new episodes released weekly, you'll hear the very best in award-winning true crime. Listen to Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. We've talked a bit about how historically so many people have felt locked out of the corridors of power in Chile, um, locked out of the decision-making process. But the, the makeup of the Constitutional Convention, uh, so the people who were elected to write this thing, it's been pretty different, right? I know, for example, that Congress voted to have gender parity uh, in the convention to reserve seats for indigenous groups. It took a long time and a lot of work to get this far. This is an assembly designed to heal the divisions in Chilean society. The newly elected president is Elisa Longcon from the Mapuche indigenous people. In the end, the makeup of the convention uh, is mostly people who are political newcomers, independents, a lot of activists, right? This is not people from the, the establishment for the most part. Yes, the political establishment was in an absolute minority in the Constitutional Convention. The traditional parties are in a minority. And that's very interesting because it's the first time that we see that their representatives of the corporations and the rich people are in a minority in political institutions. At least a, a, a 50% of the Constitutional Convention was people coming from social movements, from indigenous people, from the left and from progressive parties. The draft was uh, agreed with a super majority of two thirds. And so a lot of the opponents of the, this process have been saying that it's undemocratic, uh, but it's actually a very democratic constitution that was written with an agreement of at least two thirds of their, their, their members. We've been talking around this for a while now, but now this draft has been finalized and it's out there for public review. So what's in the Constitution? Give me the highlights. One of the main principles of the new Constitution is that Chile is now 
a democratic social state that guarantees social, economic, and cultural rights of its people. And so that's a radical change comparing to the, the, the constitution that we have right now, which is based more on guaranteeing property rights and the right to free enterprise for, for companies. Housing, healthcare, pensions, even a system of care that tries to socialize domestic work and unpaid care work is part of the constitution. Then also the access to, to drinking water and water as a human right and has, has also been enshrined in the new constitution. Also, the recognition of indigenous peoples. The text defines Chile as a plurinational country that gives autonomy and more land rights to indigenous people who make up 12% of the population. Also, the, the new constitution eliminates the Senate, and so it eliminates the, what has been uh, for, for, for more than 100 years has been an aristocratic veto on the laws. It's an institution that tends to be more conservative. And now we have a, a house of representatives that represents the nation, uh, the, the, the citizens everywhere. And then we have a, a regional chamber that has regional representation. This uh, constitution recognizes the, not just the freedom to work, but also the right to work. And so the state has to uh, guarantee decent decent work for people, and then the right to unionize, to have collective bargaining, which is something that doesn't exist in Chile. So th some, those are some of the main points that I think are interesting and relevant. I mean, this touches on so many different things. It basically addresses everything that we talked about at the beginning. It sounds like a fundamental overhaul of the entire system that's in place in Chile, right? But what are the next steps to actually see some of these changes in practice? I mean, a constitution, it's a text, it's a written thing, right? So it's not the actual reality. It's going to be decades of a struggle, a political, social struggle to actually implement this constitution. The first step for that is, first of all, to win the referendum next September. And, and, and there's a strong opposition by the right-wing and conservative movements and also the corporations against this new constitution. So we're, we are going to see the next few years, we're going to see a lot of legislative movement around these issues. And it's going to be in a Congress that it's divided with no clear majority. And so it's going to be, a, a, it's going to be rough for the next four or five years. Yeah. You mentioned like some of the hurdles ahead of this referendum that's coming up in September. Um, and some of the opposition is coming from the right people who are pro free market. They're saying that this would be really bad for Chile's economy. They argue that the pro business system that's been in place until now has been key to Chile's economic growth. Um, what do you think about that criticism? They have been telling us the story, the myth of a Chilean miracle since the 80s. For the majority of its citizens, modern Chile has been called an economic miracle. In one of the fastest growing economies in Latin America, Chileans are more affluent than at any time in their history. It was definitely a miracle for some people, for the rich people, but it has been hell for the majority. And so what they are defending when they say that is their own privileges. I don't think anyone's surprised with seeing uh, some center and right-wing politicians and uh, definitely the, the owners of big corporations 
being opposed to this project because this is what they have been doing for, for forever. It's the same story when, when we talk about raising the minimum wage, when we talk about guaranteeing labor rights, when we talk about abortion. It's the same story about there's going to be chaos uh, and, and, and the economy is going down, investors are going to leave the country, but that doesn't happen because even with the ideas and the principles and the rights that are guaranteed in the new constitution, Chile is probably going to be uh, a very interesting market for those investors for a long time. Labor is cheap in Chile. They're, the conditions for investors are very, very good. The groups that are opposing the new constitution are the big losers. Uh, but the big losers in this process have been the big winners for, for centuries. Just going back to what you were saying earlier about how the political establishment wasn't really represented in the Constitutional Convention. I know the right only had like 21 percent of the seats. And as the rewriting has been happening, there's also been this campaign to sort of undermine the process. Uh, can you talk about some of the tactics that the opposition has taken to campaign against the Constitution and to convince people that it's not a good idea? First of all, lies and more lies. That's what they've been doing since day one. Uh, even before the Constitution had decided on anything, they were already saying that it was a Constitution that was discriminatory against Chileans, that was privileging indigenous communities, that wanted to change Chile's name, that wanted to change our national anthem. A new study reveals that 60% of Chileans have received false information about the convention. All they care about is changing the national anthem, our emblem, and our flag. So very ridiculous stuff appealing to a populist sentiment, a, a patriotic sentiment. So it's been a dirty campaign. And even that 20% of representatives from the right wing that were part of the Constitutional Convention were not really working to write a new constitution. We're using those seats to campaign against the Constitutional Convention and saying that we're marginalizing them, that we're marginalizing the right wing representatives. And so it was an undemocratic process. But then when some of the, the draft articles uh, came, they uh, are deliberately lying about them, saying, for instance, that you're going to lose your home, you're going to lose your house, or that they're going to take away your pension. It cannot be that they want to expropriate our pension funds or our houses. They do not protect us from anything. In actual fact, none of these things have been approved by the convention nor the belief by many that parents won't have a say in their children's education, that indigenous groups will form 12 independent countries, and that farmers won't be able to kill their animals. So basically their argument is that, that this is some sort of dictatorial uh, communist constitution uh, that is going to take away all your rights, uh, which is definitely not true. So it's been a, basically a dirty campaign. So Chileans now have two months to learn about the new constitution and decide whether they want to vote to approve it on September 4th or stick with the one that's in place right now. And it's hard to say which way the vote is going to go. In a plebiscite in 2020, 78% voted to rewrite the constitution, but recent polls say that the public is divided, with more than half of people saying that they're inclined to reject it. Pablo thinks the misinformation has had a huge impact. 
now that the convention is it's over, all those representatives that have been working to actually write the constitution are going to be able to go and inform the people and tell the people the truth. Yeah, so, I mean, give me your final thoughts. You sound, you sound optimistic that this new constitution will be approved. I think it's going to be approved. I think uh, that when people that are not convinced see that it's going to be a constitution that actually enables change to improve their lives, they're going to believe that it's a good process because they know deep in them, in their hearts and minds, they know that what we're living right now, it's not, it's not sustainable. I mean, even if this new constitution is not approved, the history is not finished. We're going to see a crisis that is deepening. We're going to see the same people who are now disappointed that this change didn't happen. They're not going to go home and say, okay, that's it, and, and just decide to not do anything anymore because we need that change. I mean, maybe what we need to show now is that it's not an ideological whim to change the Constitution. It's an actual necessity to improve our, our lives. Pablo, thank you so much for this conversation. I really, really appreciate yeah, it. This was you. awesome. This All right, that's all for this week. You've been listening to Nothing is Foreign. This episode was produced by Joyta Shangupta and Ashley Mack. Our sound designer is Graham McDonald, and our showrunner is Joyta Shangupta. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer, and Nick McCabe-Locos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode and you want to help new listeners find the show, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandaker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.